What's up, weirdos? We have a big episode for you guys today, and I've been hinting at this particular episode since like last season, so I'm super excited to actually dive into it for you all today. So today, bust out your tinfoil hats because we're talking about forgotten ancient civilizations that science claims don't exist. I think it's safe to say we're saying goodbye to summer, which is sad, but the good news is vacation season is right around the corner. I love to buy a new suit for vacation, and Cupshe is my one-stop shop for all things swim. Their suits are flattering on bodies of all shapes and sizes, and they have the cutest styles. I'm always getting compliments on my Cupshe swimsuits. You can stock up on swimwear for your next trip right now by grabbing our up to 50% off sale items link in the show notes. So, Erin, have you heard about Graham Hancock? I think I have. I'm the worst person with names. So am I. I'm so, a, yeah, I get it. I can't tell you anything about him. <laughs> That's okay. But I know I've heard the name before. Well, oddly enough, this whole podcast is, like, pretty much about him. So you're going to know everything there is to know pretty soon. Oh, good. Um, what about Dr. Robert Schock? You ever heard about him? No. No? <laughs> no. So most people, if they've heard of either of these people, it's probably Graham Hancock. He's a bit more well-known because of his Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. Um, but most people kind of regard these guys as quacks. So we're going to talk about it, though, and we'll figure out if they are at the end or not. Do you think that quacks is, like, offensive to ducks? <laughs> like... I think it depends on how wacky someone is like do you think that that's where it originated from i don't know maybe i've wondered about this we'll look it up later i've never <laughs> wondered about this but now i am <laughs> so both of these people appeared on joe rogan which remember i apparently don't like the guy <laughs> which you never said which i never said i never said but let me tell you we posted a tiktok about me explaining that and i mean all heck and it was blues. explaining the reasons that you liked Joe Rogan, and people were like, "How dare you not like Joe Rogan?" <laughs> I was like, "Did you even listen to it?" <laughs> anyway, people might be familiar with these people. Most of the stuff you see about them, we'll talk about how they're pseudoscientists. But again, we're gonna dig into this research today. I also sent a lot of the stuff that I'm gonna cover today along to my aunt, who actually has her PhD in geology. I am really interested to hear her take on this, so maybe we'll talk about that in like a follow-up episode. Oh, cool. Yeah. So really, my best advice is just come on this journey with me. Okay? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. And I don't know what we're going to talk about today. I know. Which feels really weird. Erin <laughs> is like totally unprepared. That was by instruction. So what if I told you an ancient advanced civilization existed far before ancient Egyptians and Sumerians? I'm so curious about this because this is what you've hinted at, but I have never gone into detail about. <laughs> well, hopefully it lives up to the hype. I don't know. I feel like no, but you're going to convince me otherwise, I know. <laughs> we'll see. So previously, the oldest known civilization that we know about was the Sumerians. And modern scientific theory is that civilization as we know started around 6,000 years ago. And basically, these people were hunter-gatherers. And all of a sudden, one day, they built some of the most mind-boggling structures that exist. Mm -hmm. Because... 
we can see that the oldest stuff is the most impressive. So take, for example, the Great Pyramids in Egypt. Those iconic pyramids that you see are the oldest structures in Egypt. And as you get to newer examples of pyramid building, they're not as impressive and not as successful. So we'll start with the Great Pyramids at Giza. They contain huge cut stones from thousands of miles away. The granite's from 500 miles to the south, and the blocks in the king's chamber weigh 70 tons each. So how do they lift these stones, weighing 70 tons each, 350 feet above the ground? These stones fit so close together, you can't even fit a credit card between them. Modern explanations say that these blocks were carved using bronze age tools. So Erin, I'm going to show you a picture of okay. the saw that they claim that they used to carve these giant blocks. Okay. I'm ready. So can you describe what we're looking at? Okay. I'm such a Disney nerd. It looks like, it looks like Jasmine's shoe. How at the, at the, <laughs> Jasmine's right? shoe. At it the, does. I see it. At the end, the saw like kind of like comes up a little bit, like with a rounded edge, but it's like a full metal saw. The handle is separate and it kind of like curves a little. Yeah. Like I don't even think I could cut down a Christmas tree with that thing. Like there's no, no teeth. There, there's no serrated edge on this thing. Yeah. No. I mean, you probably it couldn't, couldn't have... even cut bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this thing is two feet long. And apparently we actually tried to do this. Like modern people, we tried to demonstrate that you could do this. And we proved that basically you couldn't. Mm -hmm. We made a couple inches down into a stone block and realized that it's basically not going to happen. But rather than saying, okay, this is clearly not how we did this, they're still sticking with that theory. And furthermore, there's not one depiction of this saw being used to cut anything other than wood. So I feel like the ancient Egyptians are watching us going, what are you doing? Like, yeah. morons? That's not how we did it. <laughs> There's no depiction of the dynastic Egyptians, which are the ones that we think of when we think of Egyptians, ancient Egyptians. The OGs. The OGs. <laughs> There's no depiction of them building the pyramids. And did you know that they've never actually found a mummy in any of the big pyramids? I didn't know that. I know. I didn't know that either. So why did we grow up thinking that the pyramids were tombs for pharaohs? Did you know that I've been inside a pyramid before? Really? Yeah. Where? <laughs> I know. It's like a fun fact about me. At Chichen Itza. So it's closed inside now. In, oh, in Mexico. In Mexico. Um, so you can no longer go inside them or climb them. And I climbed them oh when gosh. it was it was legal, people. Like, <laughs> I did like not. break in. Yeah. They are now so eroded that you can't go inside that you can't go um, climb it. Mm -hmm. But we actually were able to go inside too. Well, this is super relevant for this episode because hold that thought. I'm Ooh. actually going to circle back to some pyramids elsewhere. Another thing that's weird is, I mean, when you think of Egyptians, you think of like the super ornate like wall art and yeah. hieroglyphs and everything. Well, there's none of this in any of the pyramids, the Great Pyramids. Oh. Like if you ever look at a video taken inside, the walls are blank. There's nothing like that. So it just seems to me like you build one of the greatest wonders of the world and you don't have any depictions of it being built. Right. That just seems strange. I mean, they documented like everything in their hero gloves. Like, why would you not 
And there's no decoration inside, nothing on the nothing, walls. Nothing. I, can you imagine building a mansion and being like paintings? Exactly. No. <laughs> well, and have you ever looked at like the inside of it, like a diagram? I haven't. No. It's very strange. Like you go up these like ramps and there's like a big chamber and then there's little pier holes that come out the side. Like it's not a functional use of spaces like we would consider mm -hmm. it. It's very strange. I mean, really, when I look at like a cross section picture of it, it's like, what would this be used for? If you were going to make a tomb, why would it look like this? Right. It seems like there is a functional use that we just haven't figured out yet, mm -hmm. which with everything I'm going to talk to you about, that's probably likely the case. So what else do you think of when you think of Egypt? Uh, well, I think of something weird. What do you think? You of? really want. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Stop me if this is going to be what you talk about, but it's probably not. <laughs> so I, I have a negative blood type. This is not what we're going to talk about. Really? Okay. <laughs> Continue. So I feel like we could do a whole episode on this. So I'm going to make it just simple. Yeah. And we'll talk about it later. Let's not waste it. Um, so there's a theory that people with a negative blood type showed up, but I don't, oh, I, I have not I researched this, mm -hmm. that blood type randomly shows up during the time that they built these pyramids. Oh. So. Hmm. Yeah, they, we're not talking about that, but that's interesting. My like. Dad used to watch, I think it was Ancient Aliens that yeah. he watched, but this was so long ago. And I remember hearing about this mm -hmm. and be like, like, oh my gosh. Maybe I'm an alien. Yeah. I don't know. It can't, I'm, oh, but I don't know if I'm O positive or O negative. I'm like the universal donor, whatever oh. that is. Well, if you, did you have to get like shots during your whole pregnancy? No. Then you are not a negative. Okay. Time. There you <laughs> I'm go. I'm positive. Yeah. So I'm not an alien. Mm -mm. So what I was assuming you would say is that you think of the Sphinx. Oh, you know, but I'm not the normal person. <laughs> That's true. This Why did that... I even bother? <laughs> what? Why would you like... ask me this? I know. I should have. It was, it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> so according to Dr. Shock and John Anthony West, the Sphinx is actually way older than it's credited. They believe that the original Sphinx is more than 12,000 years old, but modern explanation says that it's only 4.5 thousand years old. They think that the head might be, but the body and the enclosure walls that surround the Sphinx and the body show extensive water erosion. And you can actually see this in the big fissures and crevices in the stone. So I'm going to show you a picture here of that. Yeah. See, like if you look along the side now this is a depiction of the water running down it but if you look along the walls that surround it there's sure. these big like cracks oh and those weren't originally in there they don't think so and they're not in the head i feel like the head doesn't match the body exactly it proportionately i've always thought that it doesn't really make sense and you can find these erosion marks on the feet you, you can find them around the enclosure and for you listeners out there, I'm actually going to link to some videos that talk about this. Mm -hmm. You can just Google Sphinx water erosion and you'll see some of these pictures. It definitely looks like if there was water running down something. The question is then, when was the last time that there would be rain like this in Africa? Because this is a dry area. Well, the geographical evidence shows that there was a period of about a thousand year of extensive rain that fell in parts of Africa during the Younger Dryas period, which we'll come back to the Younger Dryas term. You're going to hear that a lot. Now, we don't see this weathering on, as we just mentioned, the disproportionately small head. So they're thinking that that's a more recent addition. So staying in Egypt, let's talk about some of the pottery that was found. Now, this pottery was found that's carved into igneous stone. 
The pottery is some of the earliest artifacts that we find, and we know it dates from pre-dynastic times, around 15,000 years ago. What makes these vases so special, though, is how symmetrical and uniform and thin they are. Some of these are 140th of an inch thick. So think like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's like the thickness of like a credit card, basically, if you look at the size of it. And I need to clarify, these are carved vases. This isn't thrown pottery okay. that was done on a wheel. I'm glad you said that because immediately I watched thrown pottery videos. Why wouldn't I watch something weird like that? It's soothing <laughs> at night. It is soothing. I'll give um, you that. And I can't, I could not imagine them going that thin. It would like no. crush in on itself. These were carved from hard stone. That's insane. Yeah. They need intense chisels. Well, we'll get to that. Okay, okay. So according to Ben Ben Kerwick, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name. Kirk? Kirkwick? Kirkwick? I think that might be it. Yeah. He appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast a few years ago, and he says that these works were scanned using a structured light scanner. So basically, this type of scanner is used in aerospace to determine pre precision. Mm -hmm. So one of these pots was scanned, and it was found to be within two thousandths of an inch of being perfectly flat on the lip of the vase. So it had like this flat lip that went around the top. Mm. It was also found that it was in one thousandth of an inch of being perfectly perpendicular to the neck of the vase. So think of like a lip that goes around in a circle and then you've got like a neck. You would want it to be perpendicular to that, right? Right. They also found that it's within 13 thousandths of an inch of being perfectly circular. My gosh. So this vase also has handles on the neck. So like little handles that come around the side of the neck, mm -hmm. which means that it couldn't have been turned on like a lathe. I don't know if that's what that's called. The thing that spins, like right. you can make spindles with it, you know? So it couldn't have been turned on something like that because it has these little handles that clearly had to be constructed separately. Yeah. And either attached or just carved independently of each other. Mm -hmm. Now it was found that these handles on either side of the vase are within two to three thousandths of an inch of being completely symmetrical. My gosh. And that's like the width of a human hair, basically. Now the theory is that these were made with the chisels. So they went at a chunk of super hard rock with a bunch of chisels and they made a vase that's geometrically perfect. We can't even do this today with our best processes. So there had to have been some type of machinery that allowed them to do this. Like there's just, there's no way that you'd be able to do that by hand. I feel like this is creepy now. I know. This it's, is creeping me out. It, it is. And it's just in the beginning. It's going <laughs> to get creepier, isn't it? It's going to get no. creepier. And there are examples of stonework across the world. Just like take my word for it. I had mm -hmm. 23 pages worth of notes. There's a lot here that I've been working off of. <laughs> and there's also examples of like, I'm just going rogue here. This isn't in my notes, but some of the faces that are carved into some of the tombs, if you take the face and you mm -hmm. flip it over, it's perfectly symmetrical. Oh, that, you know that that's how they say like... Beauty is. Yeah, I heard, heard that. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is, I mean, we're not perfectly symmetrical. Right. So it's fascinating that how would they, like, how would you do this? I mean, the two sides of the carving would have to be created independently of each other. So how do you make something that is perfectly symmetrical? Hmm. 
Like by hand. I, I, I have no idea. Lasers. Must be. They must have had ancient laser beams. <laughs> so now let's switch gears here and look at some maps. Antarctica was discovered in 1818. However, it appears on maps back in the 16th century. Hmm. So how does this make sense? Well, because cartographers who created these maps clearly stated that they drew on information from prior examples, older maps, and there was about 20 of them, according to Perry Reese, which is one of the people that made one of these ancient maps. Okay. So they weren't hiding it. They were saying, I used other examples, and that's how I got this information. So the Perry Reese map was made in Constantinople in 1513, and it focuses on the western coast of Africa, the eastern coast of South America, and the northern coast of Antarctica. And contemporary explorers knew nothing about Antarctica, so it doesn't make sense that this would be on there. Furthermore, the details on the map when compared with seismic profiles of the coastline indicate that the coastline had been mapped before it was covered by ice, which the ice cap now is a mile thick. Okay, question. Yeah. When did they invent boats? Oh, that's a good question. Like, and I'm not talking like a little boat. Like, like a boat that could go out and do this. Like an ocean boat. I didn't look up that fact, but that's a really good point because there's some other things like Easter Island, for example. We're going to talk about this later, but mm -hmm. they figured that there were thousands of people there, like more than 10,000 people there. And Easter Island, have you ever looked that up on a map? No. It's in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And the leading theory right now is that some people literally got there via canoe. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Hmm. The latest date that this could have been surveyed when it was free of ice was 9,000 years before. So there's no civilization that we know of that had the ability to survey a coastline 9,000 years ago. Really quick, I looked up when ships were invented, mm -hmm. like specifically ships. ships. I haven't read a lot about this, mm -hmm. but it says that they were actually found in Egypt during the fourth millennium BCE. Mm, interesting. So just, which I'm going rogue here a little bit, mm -hmm. but that's how they were saying that these blocks were like brought up the Nile river because there's like a picture of it. Sure. But they've tried it <laughs> with the boats mm -hmm. that they found in I've heard tombs, this before, and yeah. it doesn't work. Right. Like it does. It absolutely didn't work. Hmm. So the blocks that were so big that were in the giant pyramids, using the methods that they're claiming it, it doesn't work like you can't do it huh we know that the perry reese map isn't fake it's been deemed to be genuine and there are others too it's not the only one the Arodius phineas map and i'm probably botching these names per usual because that's what we do on the show it's another map that shows antarctica but not only in detail that could only have been obtained prior to it becoming glaciated but it's right where it should be on our globe the Mercator map as well has provided depictions of Antarctica when there was no ice at all. Perry Reese also depicts South America with accuracy that wasn't present on new maps. And the map depicts an island that wasn't discovered until 1543. So remember the map stated 1513. Mm -hmm. And the Falkland Islands appear on the map, which weren't discovered until 1592. They also are at the correct latitude. In fact, there are maps such as the Mercator world map that got less accurate in later versions 
because as exploration of South America was progressed by the Portuguese and the Spanish, the information that was being obtained from these expeditions was swapped out with information on the source maps, which are unfortunately these really old maps are lost to history because it was theorized that they were inside the was in like desert areas mm-hmm. of the world that due to like war and stuff a lot yeah. was being destroyed recently. Exactly. Yeah, no, this was a long time ago that this burned. So the information was less accurate as the exploration was happening, because as they found these new worlds, and I use air quotes there, Mm -hmm. they would provide the information to the cartographers, and they would swap it out with the information that they compiled from the old maps. But they weren't as good at positioning things. And a lot of this was because they did not have the ability to fix longitude yet. So longitude, those are those long lines that go vertically down our globe. Latitude, Thank you for explaining. <laughs> Latitude goes horizontally. Longitude goes um, the long way. Vertically. Do you know how I would remember that in school? Because when you'd say longitude, you go long. Longitude, exactly. so your mouth would go the long way. Oh, that your mouth would go the long way. I just think long, and they're long lines. Oh, and then latitude, you're smiling more, oh, so that goes the other way. That's a great idea. There you go. Huh. Well, I'll always remember now. Oh, good. (laughs) So in order to fix longitude, you needed to have some type of instrument that would accurately keep time from the start of your journey throughout the voyage, despite the motion of the ship and the changes in humidity, weather, all of that. And we didn't have anything that could do this until 1761, which is when chronometer number four was created by an English clockmaker by the name of John Harrison. So that's why we couldn't position these things in space with as much accuracy as Mm -hmm. the previous maps, even if we'd been to them, because we didn't have any way of saying this is where it is longitudinally, you didn't have the two, you know, Mm -hmm. parts, the two coordinates, basically. So another thing needed to, so another thing I need to point out is that map making requires an understanding of complex mathematics, like spherical trigonometry, something that we didn't know about at the time that these maps were created. Now, I don't know what spherical trigonometry is. No, man. That sounds mathematical, and I don't know. Same Z's. So just take my word for it. I will. (laughs) We didn't know how to do any of this for a long time. I'm going to give you one more example of some of this ancient knowledge, and that is with the Nazca lines. Now, do you know what the Nazca lines are? (laughs) No. Okay. Are you saying NASCAR with an accent? The Nazca lines. Nazca lines. (laughs) No, the Nazca lines, they're in modern day, I think, Peru, and they depend picked different things like spiders, beings, monkeys, birds, also just like random lines. I think there's even like a creepy humanoid thing standing there waving, (laughs) but they're huge. I mean, they're huge depictions. I'm calling them glyphs. I don't know if that's the proper term because I think a glyph needs to be in rock, but I'm just going to call them that. So there are these huge glyphs that appear on the desert floor. Hmm. And we didn't even actually know that they depicted anything until we were able to view them from above. They just thought that they were like roads or something that didn't really make sense. So when you look above, you can Hmm. see that they actually are these giant depictions of creatures and things like that. So it's kind of like in Wisconsin or the Midwest where you go through a corn maze. Yes. And 
<laughs> they take pictures of it with a, from an airplane, and it says like, "Yes, oh, Tools Farm, twenty twenty three, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like that. Unless you have the right vantage point, you can't really see what it's showing. Mm -hmm. I guess. So once again, we have another example of that. The oldest glyphs are the most dramatic and elaborate. The newer ones are mostly just lines and regular shapes that utilize straight lines. And while they're perfectly straight, which is hard to do, the older drawings that depict zoomorphic figures that have like rounded edges are just mm -hmm. a lot harder to make, especially when you can't see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, like we don't think that they yeah. could. It's not like you could go stand on a mountain and look down in that particular area. Like, we don't know how they saw it. I have another question. I'm going to have to look it up. When were air balloons, <laughs> where were air balloons invented? Hot air balloons? Yeah. I don't know. But I, I mean, I don't think the Nazca were known <laughs> for their hot air balloon craftsmanship. <laughs> I could be wrong, though. <laughs> so you look that up. 1783. Okay, we're okay, good. Okay, this is definitely pre-1783. Yeah. Wouldn't it be funny if that was it? If like you were like, actually, and it was like we <laughs> solved the whole mystery. So an astronomer, Dr. Phyllis Petluga, mapped the figures using a computer-aided program. And let me just rephrase that, a computer-aided program that looked at the stellar alignments and compared that to the glyphs. Mm -hmm. And it showed that the spider is actually a diagram of the constellation Orion, and the lines track the movement of the three stars in Orion's belt. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so like, how did they do that? And this is something I studied because I took an astronomy class. Oh, really? I thought about it. I was super into astronomy when I was young and I like researched a bunch of it myself. And then when I got into college and realized I had to utilize math, I was like, I'm out. I'm out, guys. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Usually when I tell that story to people, people are like, oh, so do you know a lot about signs? And I'm like, no, that's... <laughs> That's astrology. Oh, astrology. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually studied some astrology. Of course I well, did. Well, of course. Should, yeah. yeah. This should not surprise you. And they made it very clear that they do not like it when the two are confused. Yes. <laughs> so furthermore, this spider that I was just talking about, it actually depicts a real spider. Oh. So they can tell because the glyph shows the reproductive organ on its, ex I'm serious, on its extended right leg. This spider, which is called the Rincinuli, okay, is one of the most rare spiders in the world. We have only found it in super remote parts of the Amazon rainforest. So it's not native to Nazca. It, it's from the other side of the Andes Mountains. Not a hop, skip, and a jump away. But what's even more confusing is that they knew that the rep reproductive organ was on the spider's leg, which they depicted. The way that we know that is from looking at them under a microscope. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they weren't like sticking the no. leg in the... Okay. <laughs> no, it's not obvious or anything. They would have had to have looked at it super close up. Yeah. So the other thing, and this... I, I don't know why this never dawned on me. Like, I've watched doc documentaries on the Nazca mm -hmm. lines. Like, I, I know a little bit about it. And this never dawned on me. So these are in an inhospitable desert. It's one of the driest places in South America. But yet, they depict whales and monkeys. Oh. Whales and monkeys don't live there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, unless they were very well-traveled or seafaring, how would they know what a monkey or a whale is? 
Right. You know, it wouldn't have been something that you'd see in your immediate environment. And so, I feel like to know exactly what a whale looks like, yeah. you have to like kill it. it. Yeah. Like whales would not be something that you just stumble across. Right. You know, unless you're walking the beach and someone asks if there's a marine biologist. <laughs> That's a Seinfeld reference for anyone who's a fan. I hope you understand it. Yes. So something that Graham Hancock said that really resonated with me and got me thinking is if we're only looking for the mere reflection of ourselves, could we miss evidence of ancient technology? We have a very limited idea of technology based on what we've experienced. And really, this has only been achieved as a species in the last 100 years. So if that technology that the ancients used didn't develop taking the same path that ours did through mechanical advantage and internal combustion, could their technology look like something completely different, something that we didn't realize? Mm -hmm. Like perhaps they harnessed resonance or vibration. So for example, I posted a video on our Instagram earlier this um, week that showed a zoomed in video of styrofoam balls, like the stuff that you put inside like a beanbag chair. Mm -hmm. And they vibrated them at different frequencies. And you could see how the styrofoam balls moved in different ways. They would kind of almost like dance. Right. I, I just want to stop and say, I like that you post like the technical stuff. I and know. meanwhile, I posted a stupid meme. <laughs> I know. If you pay attention to our social media, you can probably guess who posts what. <laughs> so this just goes to show, though, that vibration can actually cause things to move. So is it possible that they somehow harnessed something like this? And something that's been pointed out is that it's very echoey inside the For sure. pyramid. Yeah. And there's some weird, like, tonal resonance thing going on there. So anyway... I, I just thought that that was a really compelling thought. Like if we are looking for technology, the way that it looks to us, mm -hmm. what would that look like after we're gone? I care what you're saying. So I don't know about you, but I'm always wearing athleisure. Between working from home and podcasting, I'm always looking for something comfy that I can wear to run errands, take the dogs for a lunch break walk, and get in my evening yoga practice without having to change and without looking like a hobbit. Halara specializes in clothes you can take from workout to everywhere. So take advantage of our buy one, get one free offer right in our show notes. Okay, so I think you get my, gr my drift. Mm -hmm. Someone along time ago knew how to do some pretty amazing things, right? But how do we know that this was a global civilization? Well, that would mean that there was one civilization that spanned the whole globe, much like we have today. I mean, we have different countries and different cultures and things, but we're pretty much all connected, right? Right. Well, let me explain this. So let's start with the pyramid structure itself. Pyramids are located in five different continents across the world. And civilizations that are not supposed to have had any contact with each other. So I know that the pyramid is structurally the most simple design possible. So, I mean, it would make sense that someone would go to the pyramid design to build something since it's easy. But Erin, let me show you some of these pyramids side by side. Okay. Let's look at these first two right here. And mm -hmm. it's two pyramids that are basically side by side in two different places. And it's Cambodia and Mexico. So not 
even on the same continent. And explain what you're seeing. I mean, it looks like very similar. One pyramid's more wider than the other, but they both have the same-ish structure. They both have levels that taper in towards the top and the staircase down the middle with the door yeah up at the top which is a weird place to put a door exactly and and it's kind of like a domed sort of type peak at right. the top of the pyramid the one on the bottom is similar too which i know the viewers can't tell which one's on the bottom mm. <laughs> sorry <laughs> but they're similar as well where there are similarities that are unnecessary, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So beyond right. the fact that it's a pyramid, I mean, obviously a pyramid would slowly taper upward to a point, hence the definition of a pyramid. But some of these like cosmetic designs, I guess I'd say, or ornamental designs, they're fairly similar. Yeah. And I don't really understand why they would be. It seems like they're stylistic choices, mm -hmm. especially, you know, in the pictures that we're looking at. And I'll try to post, I don't know if I can post the pictures in the show notes, but I'm going to post to the video that talks about this. So, and this is, these are just two examples. There are examples of similar pyramids. So the first one looks m almost more like a normal, like the way you'd place a stone wall, but the second has... The stone's like layered very strangely. Exactly. It reminds me of Tetris. It does. It looks like, like, why would you cut a stone like this? Exactly. Okay, so the pictures that we're looking at right now are examples in Easter Island and Machu Picchu. Mm -hmm. So again, not anywhere near each other. Now, what strikes me about these walls is that in many cases, it would e be easier not to make the walls this way. Like, why not just make square exactly. blocks? Yeah. yeah. These are not square blocks. The best way that I know to describe them is they look like Tetris pieces. They'll have right. little chunks that stick out the side. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. So it's like in that one specific block I was zooming in on, it looked like it was like a square, but then someone took like a square chunk out of the side of it. Yeah. It was like an L shape, an upside down L. Right. Yeah. So these are sort of like jigsawed together mm -hmm. and it just doesn't make sense why you would make them that way. And in some cases, they even have these weird pieced together shapes that go up the side of doorways. So it would be so difficult to do that and make mm -hmm. the doorways symmetrical, each side of the doorway symmetrical when you're using different shaped blocks. Like, why would yeah. you do that? You would just make squares. That'd be the easiest way to build something. Mm -hmm. I mean, my kid does that all the time when he plays Minecraft. <laughs> They're just squares. <laughs> but the other thing that sticks out about this is how close together these seams are. So in some cases, like you can't even fit, again, I always say a credit card, you can't fit a credit card in between some of these seams. So how do you do this if you're just chiseling this out of rock? So another thing I should mention, though, is that these polygonal stone blocks, like I know I gave you Machu Picchu and Easter Island in the photo examples, mm -hmm. but they're found in Greece, Japan, Italy, Turkey, South and Central America, even Easter Island. Japan. Yeah. And when I'm talking about Greece and Italy, I'm not talking about like Athens and Rome. Mm -hmm. All of this is so much older than those buildings. Mm -hmm. There's also trapezoidal doorways. These are doorways that instead of being a perfect rectangular door, the sides kind of angle in. So the top of the door is deliberately more narrow than the bottom of the door. 
And this shape is far harder to obtain, and it requires a lot more expertise than a regular. If the sides are not exactly equal, it won't be structurally sound. The doors are usually flanked by windows of the same shape, also trapezoidal, and some of the windows are fake, some of them are real. And these doorways can be found in India, Egypt, Peru, Italy. And I meant to include a photo here, but I forgot to attach it. <laughs> so the, there's one in Peru and one Italy that are like identical. They've got these trapezoidal doors with trapezoidal windows and some of the windows are false. And just think of how hard that would be to create like this recessed window that doesn't actually go through the block. So another feature of these building techniques are these random little nubs that stick off some of the stones. They don't seem to serve any purpose that's obvious. It's not like they're prominent enough to be used for lifting and they're not on all the stones. They're just random placed throughout. So I have some pictures here and Erin, can you see what I'm referring to? Yeah. They're like little nubs that stick out like how else would you describe those it's almost like how when you're making a plastic mold of something yeah. how you would have that little like piece yeah that that the mold would come out of, i totally you know? know what you mean that's a really good point it does it looks almost like a little nub from a mold yeah so the examples that i provided are in india and peru and egypt so three different continents might i point out but these can be found everywhere. They've been found in China, Japan, Micronesia, Indonesia, Ethiopia, Sudan, Bulgaria, Greece, Sardinia, and Turkey. So I'm going to talk about some other random just like imagery things that are shown around the globe in some of these really ancient things. These are stone sarcophagus. Is sarcophaguses? Sarcophagi? Sarcophagi. And they have little notches that protrude around the sides not quite as rounded off as the nubs they're like more squared notches that come off the side mm -hmm. and they have like a triangular sort of shape but with a flat top these are found and they're just super identical whether they're in japan or egypt i'll put these in the show notes and they look very very similar do they not they do there's also a lot of depictions of cobras along like the heads or surrounding the head of something. So if you think of Egypt, think of like that stereotypical headdress that has the cobra yeah. on the top. That has been seen obviously in Egypt, but they're also on Hindu statues where there's a cobra either over the head of the gods or with like the mouth open behind them. Mm -hmm. There's also symbols of the trident and symbols of the caduceus, which is that medical symbol, you know, with the oh. entwined snakes. I didn't know that was called something. I didn't know that either. But it's those have been seen in Sumeria. And remember, Sumeria is one of our oldest known civilizations prior to Gobekli Tepe, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. These symbols were found in Sumeria, Egypt, Greece, and India. And oddly enough, as we just mentioned, modern times, we still use that symbol. There are more examples, but I'm just going to skip to the last one that I think is really weird. This last one, they're people with little handbags. What? Yes. People with little handbags. Do you have a picture for me? I do. Yes. So they're like these little handbags what? and they're found all over the place. They're found at Gobekli Tepe, which is in Turkey. And there's a picture here that I'm showing Aaron where it shows the little handbags along the top. 
There's pictures in Mesopotamia of that them That looks holding. like a 90s Kate Spade. It does. Doesn't it? It does. It just looks like a little, I don't know how else to describe it. It's like a little handbag. The person even looks like they're wearing a watch, which, I mean, can Stop, we just. I'm going to zoom in. It does. It looks like they're wearing a wristwatch and they're carrying a little mini handbag. And this. Um, I can't even tell you how, like, it's not just like the shape of the watch. There's like the little notches in it where you'd be able to tell time. Exactly. This is freaking me out. <laughs> and then they're also in Central America. So what's, first of all, what's in the little handbag? Like, what are they carrying? I mean, and it doesn't look like a normal, like, what could be an old handbag. It literally looks like a handbag from the 90s. It does. And there must be some significance to this handbag. Because why would you go through the effort of carving it in stone? Do you think they were like designers and they were like, oh, okay, <laughs> if you're going to carve a picture of me, make sure that you have my Louis Vuitton. Yes, exactly. I bet that's it. They have their little Birkin. <laughs> so it's so random. Like, how could it be a coincidence? Right. All right. So are you with me? that an ancient technology might have existed. I'm so with you. And okay. I didn't think I would be at the beginning, except for the fact that you always convince me. I know. <laughs> well, the argument that everyone had, obviously, was, well, if this is the case, where's the evidence of civilizations that are older than the ones that we already know about? Mm -hmm. Because so far, all I've shown you is that, yeah, maybe these civilizations just had a lot of technology that we didn't realize. What I'm trying to convince you of is that there was something older, something before these civilizations, right. and that these things that we're looking at are far older than we realized. That was what everybody struggled with, was where are the pottery shards, where is the evidence? In 1963, a site was discovered in Turkey. It was excavated fully in 1996. This site is called Gobekli Tepe, and I've mentioned it a yeah, few times already. So they radiocarbon dated the site and they've placed Gobekli Tepe about 11,600 years old, making it the oldest structure that we know of. Mm -hmm. Now this goes way back before, remember I said 4.5 thousand years ago is what they thought the oldest known structures that we had were. This is 11,600 years ago. So this sets the timeline way back beyond what we thought was possible. So what's weird, though, is that the modern explanations of the time frames would. So what's weird is that according to like the modern explanation of these time frames is that this was our first attempt. So the biggest megalithic structure on Earth was just randomly built by hunter gatherers. And this was their first attempt to me. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So Gobekli Tepe is basically a series of stone circles. The upright stones are 2 to 5.5 meters tall, and they weigh about 10 to 15 tons. And there are pillars carved with elaborate things, um, animals, people with handbags, as we just discussed. That's the thing that gets me the most. I don't, of everything you've said, I'm I like, know. these designer things. I know. Like The handbag thing really gets me. So oddly enough, in 8,000 BC, so a couple thousand years after Gobekli Tepe was created, it was purposely buried. There's evidence to suggest that the Sphinx might have also been purposely buried. They can tell by looking at the type of stone that was around it. So they found like mud bricks and stone rubble that was kind of packed into the sites. It didn't seem to just be sand or silt. 
that would have washed up from like Nile flooding, for example, in Mm -hmm. Egypt. So why did it seem that they were trying to protect these sites from something? What happened to these ancient cultures? A cataclysmic event, sort of like what happened to the dinosaurs, had to have caused so much destruction and mayhem that it wiped out civilization. But it didn't kill everyone, obviously, because humans survived. I mean, we're still here. But it's believed that it sent us back into the Dark Ages, and we forgot a lot of the knowledge that we had. So the way I heard this explained was, if something happened today, so let's say we were hit with a giant asteroid, who would fare best? Not those of us who require the power grid, technology, modern supply chain. Mm -hmm. It would be those who are already living off the land, using things around them to create shelter and stuff like that, who would survive. So just like today, we have groups of people with all different types of technological advancement. So we know that there's tribes in the Amazon that survive, you know, and they don't have the technology that we use. Most of them are completely cut off from what we consider air quotes, Western civilization, and they survive. And they think that it was groups like this who fared this cataclysmic event better than others. And furthermore, the event was felt more profoundly in some areas than others. And there's a few things that we can look at to prove this. So we can look at the ground. When we actually dig, you can see a black boundary line. It's like a charred line in the ground. This can be found in 30% of all land masses today. This mark delineates what we call the Younger Dryas Climate Interval, and I'll explain more about this in a bit. We can also see that there was a super sudden rise in global sea levels that happened right around the same time when we look at glacial chlor samples. So when they actually stick a hole in the glacier Mm -hmm. and they look at the ice patterns, they can tell that there was just this sudden increase in water. They think that this may have happened so fast that it increased 30 inches in a 24-hour period and maybe 50 feet in a year. So if most of the world population was living along the coastline, much like we do now, these people would have been completely wiped out from catastrophic flooding. Mm -hmm. The landscape can also give us a clue of this global flooding event. So in North America, you can see evidence of a massive influx of water. One of these locations that was actually talked about in one of the reference sources I was looking at, it's actually right, literally right where I was born. Like, it was so weird, Erin. So I was watching Randall Carlson, and he's done a bunch of research on this. And he pulled up a map, and I could, like, point out where I was born, where my grandma lived. It was just super random. Anywho, this was in 1969. Randall Carlson was looking at the Minnesota River Valley, and he noticed right by Flying Cloud Airport. And I'm going to mention these landmarks because all my Minnesotans that are listening, they'll know what I'm talking about. (laughs) He noticed a bluff looking into the river valley near Canterbury Park. You can see these big bluffs and embankments with this little river flowing through the area. Now, what this is called is an underfit river. So think of it as you've got this giant river bed with like big, tall bluffs on the side. But then the river that's actually running through it is much smaller than the footprint that was carved out at one point. And this is rather common. But the Minnesota River Valley, they theorized that it was a spillway of Lake Agonesi, which was a huge glacial meltwater lake. They calculated that the flow of the Minnesota River was four 
thousand times greater than the modern flow. And it dug out this big trench, essentially, as the water tore through the terrain. And there's examples of this all over the place. This is just one. There are potholes at St. Croix Falls, and this occurred where bedrock, which is a harder rock, constricted the flow of the water, causing it to speed up and made it more erosive. So this is just one example. We can see evidence of a quick rush of water all over the globe, not just in North America, but we can also see it in Africa. We can tell, though, that North America was hit particularly hard. Hmm. So to put this in perspective, this would be like the Indonesian tsunami. This would be like the Indonesian tsunami, which happened back in 2004, happening all over the world in one single day. Now, think of how much devastation that caused in just one area. And I mean, it wasn't even just one area. It was like a pretty widespread area. But imagine if that happened everywhere. I feel like this is like Noah's Ark. I feel like yeah. you're describing Noah's Ark to me. Well, we'll get to that too. Oh. <laughs> I feel like your 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 comments have been so relevant to oh, the God. stuff that's happening later <laughs> in the story. There are 500 ancient flood stories found in cultures across the world, and this spans all the continents. These may vary at the end of the day, but it all comes down to widespread flooding is the key feature in these stories, which why do we just ignore that? To me, it sounds like these stories are all trying to show us something traumatic that happened and was passed down from generation to generation. So like like Noah in the Bible, mm -hmm. almost all cultures have some type of flooding story like that. Uh -huh. Just to backtrack, we had rapid heat that scorched the earth, causing that black soot boundary line. And there's more in that sedimentary layer that, to show that it was like super intense heat. I'm just not going into all that detail here because mm -hmm. it's not very interesting. And we also have massive flooding. But following all this was an abrupt climate change that triggered a 1,200 year deep freeze. And this is what we typically call the ice age. We can see that this event caused mass extinction of animals. So 70% of American land animals went extinct during this period. The fossil records show all of this happening around 12,000 years ago, which is kind of like this magic number 12,000 mm -hmm. years ago or within that ballpark. So a few, of the, a few of these animals, just for funsies, I'm going to tell you about. One is the camelops, which is like a giant camel. So we had those in North America. Could you imagine that? Oh, my gosh. Another, how giant? Like way bigger than a normal camel. I saw a diagram and there was like a person standing and they like barely came up to like the neck. Oh. So giant camels. Otherwise, they were very similar to the camels that we're used to. Okay. Um, the giant ground sloth. I've heard of this. Yeah, I would sort of love that. I love sloths. I think they're cute. Yeah. The short-faced bear. Now, this is terrifying. It was double the size of a modern grizzly bear. Oh. It had kind of like a like a short face. Oh. Well, I wonder why they got that name. Yeah. How, how creative. The North American lions and the American cheetah. So we had our own oh. lions and cheetahs here. The short-faced bear. Okay, well, it's not like... But could you imagine that thing running at you? I don't like that. <laughs> They're terrifying. It is a very... It, the short face makes it look cuter, though. It does kind of. It kind of reminds me of like a stuffed animal after it's been well-loved and its it face gets kind of pushed in. <laughs> I know. I feel like right before you die, you'd be like, aww. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so all these animals disappeared right around the same time. 
Oddly enough, the Clovis culture, which they think was a North American civilization that occupied the entire continent, this culture seems to disappear right around the same time, too. So you ready for me to blow your mind here real quick? And my mind is already blown. <laughs> okay, well, it's going to happen again. So you've schnockered me up. <laughs> you've given, I have drank way too much at this point. You're blowing my mind and you're going to do it again. I can't handle yeah, this. Yeah, what you don't know is that I made Aaron a Moscow mule. And I realized that the shot glass, I don't think is an actual shot. I think it's much larger than I think it shot. was a vase. Yes. <laughs> It was like the stylized shot glass that I bought. And I was like, wow, this does seem like a lot. <laughs> so now that you've had four shots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this cooling period seemed to have happened so quickly that there are even woolly mammoths who've been found flash frozen with oh. food still in their mouth. They can even tell oh. what type of plant it was. They said it was like buttercups or something in its mouth. And the food is undigested in its stomach. So think about that for a second. Woolly mammoths are built for the cold and they were flash frozen. It's also not like they're tiny. I mean, that's right. like an elephant. So what would cause something like that to happen other than some massive cataclysmic event? Mm -hmm. While we're on that subject, what did happen? Well, there's three major theories that I'm gonna cover here and each kind of have their own strengths and weaknesses. And I'm going to go from kind of most normal to crazy. That's, so that's the, the theme I'd like. Yeah. <laughs> and keep in mind, some of these ideas are pretty controversial. And I'm just going to say we are not in any way saying that we agree with any of the statements contained in these theories outside of just what triggered the Younger Dryas period. I say this little disclaimer because our, our first theory comes from a guy who's been called a white supremacist oh. and all sorts of other things. Now, he's married to a woman from Malaysia, and I'm genuinely interested to know where so much of the hate towards him comes from. And I'm like, I'm sincere in saying that. Mm -hmm. Like, I am curious. I would like someone to explain to me what they're seeing. My interpretation is that maybe some of this was taken out of context because part of his book does talk about like a fair-skinned person who appears in some of these ancient stories who spread knowledge and ideas. Mm -hmm. And from what I read in his book, he's simply just relaying what was told in some of these legends and not necessarily saying that the person was white, but simply they were described as fair. So that's my take on where some of this maybe was misconstrued. Scientists hate this guy. And it's because he doesn't come from the scientific community, but yet he's challenging some of these long-held notions that many researchers have literally built their career off of and, you know, are tenured professors that now their life's work is kind of being called into question. So I could see how he could tick a lot of people off. So Graham Hancock is an investigative journalist. He is not a geologist or an archaeologist. He basically just tackled the subject the same as he would any other story, following leads and investigating conclusions that just like didn't make a lot of sense to him. So what he believes is that, and he's open to other ideas. This is just the most common thing that I've heard from him, is that he believes that there was an impact from space that triggered a chain of events that caused a mass extinction event, effectively pressing the reset button on our species. 
So we'll refer to this as the Younger Dryas impact theory. So a possible zone of impact has actually been located, and this has been more recent. It came out after his theory, and I'm not sure if Hancock like agrees that this is the location, but it's been correlated by people who support his theory. So just to clarify, he had this idea before they found like a crater. So NASA discovered a 19 mile wide crater under the Hiawatha Glacier in Greenland. And according to an article that my source screenshot from Nat Geo, this asteroid could have been 0.75 miles across, weighing 11 to 12 billion tons and traveling at about 12 miles per second. They also think that this happened right at that magic number 12,000 years ago. An object hitting the Earth of this size would have the force of a 700 megaton warhead. So for comparison, the Hiroshima bomb was a one kiloton of TNT bomb, and it flattened about a mile. So think of how much larger and more destructive this would be. This impact would have initially caused a great deal of heat from the explosion and, and from the friction, and it would have melted the ice caps. So the Greenland ice sheet, which covers this impact crater site, currently it contains 6 million cubic miles of water volume. So for comparison, there's, there's 5,439 cubic miles of water volume in all of the Great Lakes combined. So this would be like if something melted overnight, unleashing many times the volume of the Great Lakes into the oceans. That is what they think happened. So this would have caused also catastrophic coastal flooding and not just like flooding from a rainstorm which is what we're kind of used to it, it would have been like a tsunami type flooding that happened everywhere all at once the friction would not only melt everything but it would set a bunch of things on fire too as if we don't have enough going on right mm -hmm. now so you would have had this hellscape of burning land and remember they think 10% of the Earth's surface was scorched during this time, causing that black soot sedimentary layer that I mentioned before. So finally, all this heat and water would disrupt our ocean and wind currents and throw debris up into space. And it would cause the climate to suddenly cool and it would stay this way for about 1200 years. So that's one idea. That's the Younger Dryas Impact Theory. Okay. Okay, so this next idea was put forth by Dr. Robert Schock and John Anthony West. Dr. Schock holds a PhD in geology and geophysics from Yale. So he's from academia. He is best known for his work on the Sphinx. As I mentioned before, he was the guy that suggested that it was much older than originally thought. He created a super popular documentary in like the early 90s called The Mystery of the Sphinx, which was narrated by Charlton Heston, and it it aired on network television, which I feel like I've heard about this before. The Mystery of the Sphinx. I feel like that's 100% something my dad would have watched. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, probably. This would have been when we were kids, and it, like I said, it was on network television, so mm -hmm. it would have been something that we probably all saw when we were little. Yeah. So a lot of people were super annoyed that he made money off of his theories. So they sort of kind of like labeled him as a sellout, but whatever. I don't think that makes him any less credible. Mm -hmm. 
So his idea is similar, that something happened 15,000 to 11,000 years ago that caused a series of climatic fluctuations triggering the Younger Dryas period. He believes, like the others, that this period began and ended very abruptly, just adding to the chaos. And he thinks that it might have begun either three years or even overnight that started the event. But unlike Hancock, he believes that solar activity triggered the sudden glacial melting. So this sudden melting changed the ocean circulation patterns as well as the Gulf Stream, which is really crucial for maintaining the stable climate of our planet. From my understanding, it's not so much that everything got really cold. It's just that the cold was redistributed in ways that we're not completely used to. So imagine if like, Florida turned into Siberia. It doesn't mean that no one could survive there. It just means that the humans and the creatures that were there were not adapt to survive that, especially if it happened super fast. It's kind of like when it snows in Florida. Yes. And people just, and it's not like people are being stupid. No. Like they've just never had to deal with exactly. it before. Like I watched, this is a side story. I'm just going <laughs> to do it. I watched this news report when they were preparing for that snow that one year. Yes. And one of the reporters was like out in the field. She's like, I'm going to show you guys how to use an ice scraper. <laughs> and she was using like the wrong end of it. Oh my and gosh. Fun fact. Most reporters are actually from the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So um, just because we, we have the most neutral. We yeah. Do the, the voice. Um, and he was like, wait, wait, you have it the wrong way. <laughs> And I mean, it's just stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you've you know? never used it. So my mother-in-law lives in Florida during the winter. She's a mm -hmm. snowbird. And she lives in like South Florida. So it's warm there all the time. But they've had a couple cold snaps since she's been living down there. And one of the biggest concerns is that the iguanas, which are cold-blooded, they freeze and they fall out of the trees. Yeah. So you have to actually be careful not to be hit by a falling iguana. <laughs> I mean, we are in Wisconsin. I know we've mentioned that before. We are used to the cold. So it's not like people couldn't have survived this. It's just if you were, you know, wearing a swimsuit on the beach and all of a sudden there was this catastrophic change in climate, I mean, you'd probably die if it was freezing. You right. wouldn't have the materials to, you know, save yourself. Plasma is our fourth state of matter. It creates electrically charged particles that bombard our planet all the time, actually. And we recognize this as the Northern Lights, which we have in our area. Have you ever mm -hmm. seen the Northern Lights? So a few times this past year, I don't know if you had yeah. it up here, but mm -hmm. at mysteriously eclectic south um you could go out and see them and we tried to but i feel like we didn't get like a really good exactly of it. we have the same problem here so i have seen them a couple times but not oddly enough the ones i've seen don't look like the pictures of the northern lights right. they're just more like pillars of light that kind of shimmer they're not mm -hmm. like multiple colors now, really powerful plasma bursts can cause strong electrical charges that hit the Earth, and if they're strong enough, they could incinerate things on the planet's surface. So according to a Los Alamos plasma physicist, Dr. Anthony L. Parat, powerful plasma bursts entering our atmosphere can cause weird patterns in the sky that look like even possibly humanoid figures. So they can take on shapes like donuts, rings, snakes, serpents, which that's kind of redundant, um, <laughs> and even humans with bird-type heads. 
So what does that sound like to you? Egyptian. Yes, yeah. Horus. Horus was a human with a bird head. Well, I don't know if he was a human, but he had a human-shaped body and a bird-like head. So petroglyphs found around the world could be depicting these super intense plasma bursts. This plasma burst could have caused widespread fire on Earth and incinerated the ice caps, causing global flooding, just like we discussed. But it also could impact the mental and psychical abilities of the humans that were able to survive the catastrophe. And this is a point that I personally find really interesting. There are so many stories that suggest that we at one time had a greater ability to speak with things greater than ourselves. So whether that be God or spirits, it seems almost like there's all these ancient stories or ancient religious stories that have some component of being able to speak with something else. Why is that something that's not really part of our modern species? At least not to the degree that it used to be. Mm -hmm. So I really like this part of the theory because it kind of accounts for that change and maybe why we lost some of that knowledge. I know some people think that maybe that knowledge was being given to us by something else. And if we lost that connection, that ability to obtain knowledge from something maybe slightly paranormal, that would kind of explain why maybe we forgot things. Mm -hmm because this was probably part of an ongoing cycle of increased solar activity ancients might have buried some of their but most beloved monuments to protect them shock also believes that people sought refuge underground so in caves under cliffs inside rocks and this could explain many of the structures that are either underground or in cliffs so a couple example of these are cappadocia in turkey it's basically like a honeycomb-esque city underground with complexes that goes super deep. Derinkuya is another such site. This is also in Turkey. And it's thought that it could have actually housed 20,000 people with additional space for livestock and food stores. And it burrows 85 meters underground and has 18 levels of tunnels. Dang. And from my understanding, they're still excavating some of these sites. Oh, that's cool. There's also, and this wasn't mentioned in the sources, this is just my own mind connecting these dots. There's also the Mustang Caves in Nepal. Now, have you ever heard of these? No. So this is a collection of 10,000 man-made caves that were dug into the sides of cliffs in the nearly inaccessible Mustang region of Nepal. And this region is an extremely preserved location. Only recently have they actually allowed people to come in and investigate the caves because it's like a revered sacred place to them. And it looks like at some point these were used as burial locations, but they know that people lived in these caves. And honestly, it's so hard for us to get to them, to, to excavate them. That's a hard word. I know that is a hard word, especially after you've had a little bit to drink, <laughs> that it's hard to really research them. So we're still learning more about them. And then also there's the North American sites of Mesa Verde. The ancestral Pueblo people lived in natural cliff villages. So when all these sites, when you look at it through the lens of perhaps people were trying to escape something that was like an environmental hazard, it kind of just makes them more captive. So this last theory is the idea of crust displacement. And there are a few people who have latched onto this theory. 
Probably the most popular is Charles H. Hapgood. He was a professor of the history of science at Keene College. He wrote a book on this theory entitled Earth's Shifting Crust. And actually, Albert Einstein wrote the foreword for the book. You know, I always forget how long I that Einstein lived. Yeah, like, it I always know. shocks me. I know. I feel like he was like a million years ago. You right. know. Where some of these theories differ is what caused the crust to be displaced. Okay, so what crust displacement is, is, you know, Earth is a sphere. Did you know that? I did know that, yeah. <laughs> and the outside is crust. The outside of the crust of the Earth is jigsawed together out of tectonic plates. And these tectonic plates are essentially floating around on top of a molten core. So if you try to move the puzzle, so think of like a jigsaw puzzle laying mm -hmm. on a table. If you try to move it by applying uneven pressure to the pieces, the puzzle will just fall apart. Mm -hmm. And the bigger pieces will slide over the smaller pieces and you'll kind of have like a mess. But if you put an amount of even pressure on like say the corner of the puzzle it's possible to move the whole thing without breaking the puzzle know what i'm saying yeah like if you just touch the corner you could kind of like gently scoot it along so twelve thousand years ago something happened and i put something in quotations because that's kind of the big question here that sort of caused the northern continents which are covered in ice to like slip to a new location, moving Antarctica and rotating the other continents. So the idea is that this something happened that kind of caused all these jigsaw pieces to slip. So according to Hapsgood, it was a great buildup of ice in the Northern hemisphere. So like on the pole, not situated symmetrically that caused the slippage to happen. So basically as the earth rotated on its axis, this imbalance caused the slippage to happen very quickly. So Graham Hancock, remember him? Yeah. He also talked about this theory in his book, Fingerprints of the Gods. And he explained that it was much like the skin of an orange. So if you had, and I think of like a clementine, right? Like those. Why was clementines? I also thinking of a clementine? <laughs> because the skin sometimes is like easy to peel and it can be loose. So like, let's say all of the skin of that orange was no longer connected to the orange inside. So it's possible to shift the whole inner part or the whole outer part of the orange in like one piece. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I find it kind of hard to believe that just the movement of the earth with like an unbalanced load essentially somehow yeah. caused everything to go cattywampus. I don't mm -hmm. know. I just don't really buy that. But I guess what if that steady pressure was from like an impact? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like the example of like pushing your finger on like the corner of a jigsaw puzzle. What if that was from an impact? So essentially combining the impact theory with this theory. Now that's when I think things get interesting because why couldn't both be true? You know, yeah. so you have a giant impact and it actually causes the crust to like be displaced. I feel like that makes sense. Exactly. Get behind that. Exactly. Now there is actually one more theory. And that theory is contained in a classified essay that only recently became available, sort of. 
under a Freedom of Information Act. And I say sort of because it's a highly sanitized copy, not even redacted, sanitized. So we don't even really know what specifically is missing, but we know that 80% of the essay is still classified. Now, this essay is so controversial, I don't even feel comfortable talking about it in the regular portion of our podcast. So we're going to do a deep dive into this last theory, which is scary. (laughs) If it's true, I'm a little freaked out, to be honest. So we're going to dive into this in a little bonus extension to this episode. So you can listen to that right now, actually. It's available wherever wherever you listen to our podcast you just click on the locked episode and it'll walk you through signing up it's 199 a month to get the bonus content like this we run a whole season actually in tandem with our normal season so you can get extra episodes sometimes you can get our content a little early if we do like a twofer episode So get even more mysteriously eclectic content and help out your favorite podcast. It's a win-win. And like I said before, this is less than you pay for coffee. Exactly. For your Starbucks. So, Erin, what do you think about all this that we covered so far? Real, fake? Are they quacks? Quack, quack. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) I can definitely get behind it. And you know what I kept thinking when we were talking about how did they move things? How did they get it up there? just my own personal theory. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they found a way to create rock like we would, I don't know, like plastic or ceramic or something. Maybe. Like what if they had molds, especially when we talked about those little nubs. What if they were able to just take something in the mold they wanted it to look like Mm -hmm. on top of the other bricks Mm -hmm. and somehow create rock in that mold and move it? That's a good point. That's a really interesting idea. But I mean, all that still leads to they had to be more, you know, like knowledgeable than we might assume they were. Exactly. Yeah. I So that just kind of made me think of something that I really should have put in this episode, but I forgot. Um, So I'm going rogue here because I'm going completely off memory. So there is this place in Florida, I believe, and... I can't remember the name of the building, but there was this man who built this stone structure. I think they call it the something palace. And it has like, for example, a giant stone door that was so easily balanced that you could like push it with one finger. I've heard of this. Yeah. And they actually tried to, something happened with the door. So they tried to fix it in more modern days Mm -hmm. and they were not able to get it to work the way he had it. Now, We might have to do like a whole maybe bonus episode on this because Mm -hmm. it's really fascinating. But he built all this in secret. No one ever saw him do it and by himself. Hmm. And so people wonder if he somehow came up with some secret that other people don't know about to move giant stone structures. And so it makes me think that there's something that we just haven't connected the dots with. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And something maybe that occurs in nature. And that's why like that resonance idea I thought is fascinating, like something vibrating at a certain frequency. Because an example that I heard, and I I didn't initially use this example because you're using something that's like a modern, a modern invention. But Randall Carlson explained it as if you took an electric razor, 
Or, I mean, you could say an electric toothbrush, you know, something that vibrates like that. And you turn it on, you put it on a table. What's it going to do? Move around. It's yeah. going to move. Yeah. So we've found that resonance can move things, you know? I'm glad you explained it that way. Mm-hmm. I feel like that makes me help. It helps me understand it more. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I am totally on board with this idea. And I even take it a step further. I wonder sometimes what if what we're seeing as far as like UAPs are actually just evidence that we harness time travel in these ancient times. And if you believe any of what Bob Lazar said, which you might have to go back and listen to our episode where we talked about Bob Lazar in season one, he says that some of the crashed crafts that he worked on, that they were buried and they were super old. So why did we bury them or where did they come from? What, how did they get here? So it makes me wonder sometimes what if they were buried in the same way that like Gobekli Tepe was buried or, you know, these revered things, maybe it was something intentional like that, you know, and I heard someone else say, what if we disappear tomorrow? And what would be left of our technology? So especially taking into account that there was some catastrophe. All the understanding we have gained of computers and communication and all of that, it's contained within our phone and our computers. That's the evidence of all that we've figured out with tech. Yeah. So what would happen to that? What would physically be left after a cataclysm, even take out a cataclysm and just say thousands of years, what would be left? Mm -hmm. So 10,000 years down the road, if someone's looking at what's left of us, I mean, what would be left? And I mean, I even think of like my library, for example, half of my library isn't even physically in my house. It's on my Kindle app. So back to what Graham Hancock said, we have this one idea of what technology look like, and that is us, you know, what we use, then could we just be missing stuff? Could we be missing their examples of technology because we don't know what we're looking at? Like the pyramid, you know, right. we're just missing it. So I don't know. I really like this idea and I am all in. Now, I'm just not sure what caused the catastrophe. And to be honest, I kind of like some of the ideas that are put forth in hypothesis four. And I hate to do that for our non-bonus listeners, but mm -hmm. I mean, there is just some interesting stuff and it's really wild. So I hope you guys can listen to it. So thank you everyone for listening. I really hope you guys like this episode because I really poured my heart and soul into it. She did. I know. I've been researching this stuff for months, to be honest. I mean, I was working on this during the off season. If you really liked it, please let us know. Share it with your friends. Give us a five-star rating and follow us on whatever platform you listen to us on. And we're super excited to catch up with you next week when we move into some of our more Halloween-y content. And remember to follow us on Mysteriously Eclectic Podcast on Instagram and at Mysteriously Eclectic Pod on TikTok. So have a great week, everyone.